Hello, everyone, and welcome to Talking Tolkien. I'm John. I'm Katie. And I'm Chase. And today we're going to be discussing The Fellowship of the Ring, the movie from 2001. I don't know why I specified that. It's the only movie called <laughs> yeah, Fellowship of the Ring. It seemed like a weird thing to specify. When did it come out? <laughs> like December what? 14th, 15th? December 18th, I think. I don't 17th know. 17th or 18th, yeah, something like that. Uh... Yeah, if it were Return of the King or The Hobbit we were talking about, we could conceivably be talking about the Ralph Bakshi animated classic. <laughs> I use that term uh, lightly. So, yes. Animated classic. Katie, you want to take it away with Today in Middle Earth? What is today? Is today the 7th? Today is the 7th, yes. Jan- January 7th. All right. Yeah, so today is January 7th, and the Fellowship are still in the wild, pretty much. Um, tomorrow on the 8th, actually, they, they reach Holland. Um, which is kind of that that land, you know, as they're heading right before the the gate, right after Rivendell, before Moria. Uh, Minas Tirith, yes. yeah. yeah, yeah, not Minas Tirith, Moria, Thank Moria, you. yeah. So yeah, we're we're still in the wild, on our way, um, getting closer to Moria. Tomorrow we'll reach Holland. There we go. It's two thousand. Okay. It's so two thousand sixteenth year of this, the fourth age. <laughs> okay so the lord of the rings the fellowship of the ring was released on december 19th 2001 ah i was close the two towers was released on december 18th 2002 and return of the king was released on december 17th 2003 because they were trying they were trying to be like the the second or third like Friday of December, the right, yeah, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, just by the nature of how calendars work, they were. Yeah. Written, yes. Anyway, oh. all right. So shall we? Let's do a brief recap of what happened in the story. <laughs> the whole entire book. Oh no! <laughs> yeah. I don't remember that far. Uh-huh. Uh, all right. Shall we just start with our stray observations? Do we do we really have a format for this, or is it just going to be kind uh, of? observational uh yeah i mean because so right off the bat the first thing that comes to mind is the fact that they just did not have the 17 years elapse that elapsed in the second elapses in the second chapter of fellowship of the ring yeah we, we kind of i mean we we get a sense ultimately of, i don't really know that it makes that big a difference it, no it really doesn't and yeah. i mean i mean <laughs> we, we I, I mean, I guess Frodo was a lot more juvenile. Yeah, I kind of feel like some time has passed, but you know, we're we're it's just we're not shown like seventeen years. Um, so this is a really young looking fifty year old. <laughs> well, but, but however, <laughs> that's you the know, ring for you. Remember in the book, though, you know, Frodo does look rather young. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, um, that that was always the thing. I mean, again, my having now read the fellowship of the ring and then seeing the movie i realized that what is in my brain is very different than that movie mm-hmm. but i still really dig the movie mm-hmm. you know for one i do i actually do really like that change of taking out the 17 years mm-hmm. because i mean it's easier to show that for, like gandalf went to like one place to do research he went it showed him going to Minas Tirith, which well, and they just they cut out the the side plot of Gandalf and Aragorn having tracked down Gollum and then having transferred him to Legolas and, you know, then Gollum having escaped. 
And, you know, indeed, when we get to Rivendell, Legolas and Gimli and Boromir just appear as if Elrond had summoned everyone together for, you know, uh, the uh, United Nations meeting uh, of the, you know, the Security Council, rather than if everybody just kind of independently came. And ultimately, I don't know that it really makes that big a difference because, you know, watching it, you never get that backstory and nobody really questions why anybody is there. It's, it's, it's not that big of a deal, these changes to me, because again, with with these movies, what what was done, which you have to do to make a movie so that it is not, you know, 12 hours long, is that you have to pare it down and really take the central story that is Frodo like basically the whole progression of the ring as it leaves Bilbo's hand and comes to Frodo and what all has to happen to help Frodo on his journey to destroy the ring. Um, So you have to take out some things that honestly don't fit into that narrative and don't uh, really help to focus on that kind of singular story. So the changes that were made Honestly, I really don't have too much of a problem with them. I will say it's kind of a shame that the success of, I mean, primarily Lord of the Rings, but also Harry Potter has then led to Game of Thrones. Because because could you imagine, you know, swap out Lord of the Rings for Game of Thrones, but maintain like the same production values? Well, I mean, Game of Thrones was originally pitched as a TV show. And then he was like, well, I can't get it made as a TV show. Write a book. And then it was made as a TV show, which is hilarious yeah. how that all works out. But And and now the TV yeah. show is going to come out before the book does. But anyway. Um, yeah, but like, you know, just imagine like if you had that kind of extended form storytelling. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, like this was largely successful at telling the core of the story. Yeah. I will say this. I'm still very intrigued by The Lord of the Rings. I am still intrigued by Tolkien. And I think... Uh, Game of Thrones and the Song of Ice and Fire is garbage. So I mean, there's something right there to be said. Uh, I, I have I have nothing that I could possibly say because I have neither read the books nor watched the the TV show. Let's just yeah, say, neither have I. I have a big okay. I have a big thing. Like I feel like Tolkien with the Lord of the Rings and even these movies have done a fantastic job mm-hmm. of being fantasy. And being a little less, like, I mean, they're not quite as zany as something like The Labyrinth or Lady Hawk from the 80s. But, oh my god, Lady Hawk. Uh, but have not strained to deep seriousness as Game of Thrones or The Witcher. I absolutely hate, oops, excuse me. <laughs> I absolutely hate the type of fantasy that has kind of plagued a lot of pop culture right now with The Witcher and um game of thrones because in many ways it's not fantasy hmm. it's not traping on these things yeah they may be inspired off of like tolkien and lord of the rings but they're trying to be we're serious we're the we're like the west wing of fantasy we just have we <laughs> we don't have that stuff like like tolkien and lord of the rings owns what it is those have identity crises hmm. is my personal like that, that, that's a bone to pick I have about the whole thing is, 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 is there's a there's a crisis of identity with those things compared with like the Lord of the Rings like Lord of the Rings knows what it is and goes full on into it yeah and that's a tangent I'm sorry but <laughs> but, but but I think that uh, that I, I can we can totally agree that yeah this 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 movie is the Lord of the Rings um, 
it's got it's got at its core what it needs to have well and also it's an example of like this movie is a, a prime example of how strong something can be when you have good filmmakers working on a project as well as being fans of the source material yeah because they kind of know not necessarily they're good enough filmmakers to know what should be cut and they're fans of what uh, they're fans of the source material enough to know what definitely should be kept in mm-hmm. like I was noticing now more than ever the little pokes and prods towards the Silmarillion or towards <laughs> the Hobbit that never have I noticed because it's been six years since I've watched this movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I guess that's like the benefit of good production design too is like you can populate the background with stuff that feels realistic but then is also at the same time going to flush out the universe to people who are in the know but it doesn't make anyone feel like they don't have to be. Yeah, and, and there's nothing that would that would like jump out at, at you were you not knowledgeable of, of, of the world before that you would say what the heck is going on right but it's it's something that you know if, if, if you are knowledgeable you can notice little things in the background right well kind of just them kind of little treats <laughs> like the big one that stood out to me was being in Balin's tomb yeah uh, Balin now has a through line has a history that name has weight to it i remember him from the hobbit i remember the interactions with him yeah i even can like think back for god forbid a little bit to the hobbit movie i remember the (laughs) actor who played him in that you know i can have that experience that is adds much more to that character which to be honest even before having read those books still dug all those scenes but now i have a little bit of extra spice on it we were watching the movie and i actually made this metaphor about how beforehand i had like a steak that i enjoyed but now i have like the meat i have like the steak and the potatoes and a sauce and like green beans no no earlier that. earlier your metaphor was a pork it was chop. a pork chop yeah i'm hungrier for different things <laughs> <now>. <laughs> but but yeah and so you know before not having known really who balin was all you really knew was that balin was gimli's cousin he mentions it in the film um so you know this is a, a family member but you, and you didn't necessarily have that connection to the character. Now you have this knowledge of the of this character through uh, the Hobbit before, mm-hmm. and you know have grown a connection to it. So yeah, it adds a lot more depth, right? It's um, it's the if you're in the know, you're gonna really dig this. If yeah. you're not, you're still gonna enjoy it. Yeah, you're still gonna enjoy it. And you're gonna know that that oh, I don't know what that means, but it means something. Yeah. Which yeah. C- we, we could be pestering at times, but it's handled. elegantly here you know which kind of comes from the fact of you know they spent a long time working on this movie and it shows Mm -hmm. there's great i think the the highlight of this movie and and john said it already is the production design the movie just looks great everything is so rich and you know as we were watching i was commenting like bag end that the design is just exquisite the you know it's the camera pans kind of in uh, over the in the kitchen and you know, the, Bilbo's got his maps everywhere, and there's papers, and there's plates of food, and it's just perfect. It's exactly how you would, ex- how you want that Hobbit hole to look, right? Perfect and beautiful. <laughs> well, maybe not perfect. You know what well, I mean? Like yeah, yeah. perfect in your mind. Per- perfect have, in, per- that, in is that it looks exactly as it should. Disheveled. And- uh, and yeah, it, of course, not not perfect as in everything's neat because no Hobbit would look that way. And also, Ian Holm is just very good. Yeah. And that's the other thing, you know, 
the casting of these movies just could not have been better. Um, and, you know, as we, we were talking about it before, you know, because remember I had mentioned Viggo Mortensen even at first had was was not originally in the role of Strider. Um, they It was, who was it? Stuart, Ta- Stuart Townsend, I believe. And yeah, it had just realized that he wasn't wasn't right for the character of Aragorn. Do I know him from somewhere? Yes. What are some other things that he's been in? I don't remember off the top of my head. I'm sorry I asked this now, but I mean, that's just very interesting that the casting fluctuated in that way. You know, they had to... Because you were saying something along the lines of that Stuart Townsend was too young for the role, yeah. so they had to find someone who's, you know, over 100 years old, like Viggo Mortensen <laughs> apparently must be to play okay. the role. <laughs> so interestingly, he was he dated Charlize Theron for nine years. Yeah, he did. Um, uh, he was Dorian Gray and League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Well, yeah. Oh, okay. That's the yeah. That's the one I know. I, 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 I like that stupid movie. <laughs> that's a stupid, stupid movie. Uh, yeah. Here, we, okay. It says he was there rehearsing and training for two months, but was fired the day before principal photography began. Yeah, because again, they realized he looked about twenty years too young. I'm looking at his Wikipedia article right now. Um, but yeah, <laughs> so am I. Yes. Uh, so, but you know, and in, in getting into that. Y- y- I could not have imagined anyone else as Aragorn. Um, Viggo Mortensen, you know, uh, uh, John and I were men- mentioning that both of us kind of were really obsessed with the uh, the bonus interview footage <laughs> from the extended DVDs, you know. I watched all of the hours of that footage. And I just remember Viggo Mortensen talking about, like, being on set, and when there would be breaks, he would run off into the woods. And, and, and all, all the others were saying that, you know, they would break filming and Vigo would run off and be Aragorn. <laughs> and like, he would fix his costume if it ripped, you know, um, things like that. I mean, guys, he didn't bathe either. <laughs> just, just went full out there in the wild. And uh, they were just I mean, like, I mean, Vigo Mortensen is a very weird person and I could imagine him doing that. I don't know about that, but, but I mean, that's the, that's the level of commitment that, Really, all of these actors gave to these characters. There are so many moments throughout these films that you look, the, you know, the weight of the, of the expression that is given is so perfect. Ian McKellen, of course, is a master of his craft. And there's just so many times when there's, you know, pages and pages of words that he's giving with just his facial expression. It's like you have been alive for a very long time. You have seen a lot of things. You may have hidden the ring that may have belonged to a dead guy at some <laughs> point. You know, you know things well, like that. And the, the, the moment at the Council of Elrond, you know, when when Frodo, everyone's kind of fighting about the ring, and Frodo says, "I will take the ring to Mordor," and Gandalf has this moment. He just closes his eyes, and it's that he has he Ian McKellen perfectly conveys this idea that we get from Gandalf like I knew you were going to say that I really, really wish you hadn't because I fear for you you know because mm-hmm. I've just... seen this this crush others before <laughs> who are you know technically stronger than you you yeah. know yeah so we get we get that we get Ian Holm master mm-hmm. how how do you even begin to describe the the level of performance that so many give in in this it's just i mean he and, and he in particular is like giving like like 
just Bilbo having all these like little ticks and like these little like habitual like I don't know like, can, it's can... great like they they, they, they a, lot, a lot of work went in this movie yeah, well, <laughs> yeah I mean they're also nothing stands out to me as being like particularly awful or you know like any particularly bad performances no, no not no, at all everything, um, everything is like they I think these people really understood these characters and were given great direction as to you know what kind of what what your character has known and has seen um, and what's leading up to this point that you're trying to portray right now. Well, and they were they were together filming for 18 months, so, you know, they really did kind of create a fellowship and yeah. form that bond. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, you know, just no matter how many times I watch this movie, that's something that I always appreciate um, is the level of performance that's given from really everyone. So great. Well, and besides performance, I mean... The, 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 what was it going to move on to now? I can't remember. <laughs> oh, well, let's, let's take a moment to talk about some of the really big changes that do occur. So I think the most obvious one is the ending. It does not end the way that Fellowship of the Ring, the book ends. Yeah, it, I mean, the, the, the Fellowship of the Ring book ends, or third of the Lord of the Ring. You know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> it ends with uh, Frodo breaking from the group. And Sam chasing after him, and then and that's all that we know, and that's all that we know, and the and, and literally that's it. Yeah. Like we don't know what happens with the rest of the fellowship, and and this go this this automatically goes ahead and kind of allows some of I'm guessing the two towers to bleed into this. Yeah. So basically, what we get is we we have we're establishing at the end of this book kind of the three different. Uh, breaks that that we're going to follow now in Two Towers. Um, so we have Frodo and Sam off, and then we have Merry and Pippin, um, who have been taken by the Urukai at the end of this movie. And then uh, we have. Oh, that's Aragorn. what they're called. I kept messing up their names. Yeah. <laughs> and then we have uh, Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli, who are running after to try and uh, follow. Marion Pippin. Well, and also, I guess we're getting things that aren't revealed in the book or have been fudged a bit in the movie. Like, you, you, we don't really, we know that Saruman is leaning towards Team Sauron, but we don't quite know exactly what he's doing yeah, in the book. Uh, so I imagine either a lot of that's been heightened for the book or for the movie. Or they're allowing elements of exposition that will be coming up in the future books to bleed over a little bit. Yes, and that's something a... you'll see a lot more in The Two Towers. Yeah. Yeah. So kind of they're, they're setting that up uh, earlier within the Fellowship. And this is something that we talked about as we were watching the movie, too. That it's kind of, it's it's giving you a tangible villain at this point, really. Yeah. you're. I mean, in many ways, Saruman is kind of like... I'm about to make the worst comparison <laughs> on earth. Forgive me for the love of God. Saruman is kind of like the Darth Vader to Sauron. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, no. no, that's not a bad comparison at all because the movie does give the impression that Saruman is a lieutenant working on behalf of Sauron yeah. rather than in the book where it's fairly obvious that Saruman is trying to 
claim the ring for his own purpose. Yes. Okay. And, and yeah. the, the movie doesn't explicitly state that Saruman is working for Sauron. But I mean, when he's torturing Gandalf, he says, you must join me. It is. It it, it 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 does kind of create the impression that Saruman is working on behalf of Sauron rather than working for his own purposes. Yeah. Yeah. Where in the books, I I think I'd gotten the impression that he really wants to he he wants to be Sauron, right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, it's been so long since we've touched on. Saruman I want to be a dark lord, and also with the like... magic ring of my own. Like that, I wanna be uh, my comparison Lord, of Saruman to Darth Lord. Vader was like one of those things I say every once in a while that like a little bit of your life gets like sucked <laughs> out into the ether. Like, stop apologizing. I, mean, I think it's an apt comparison. It is. It, it's. It's not. It's really not. Uh, so that, holy on, on. So that Urukai who who kills Boromir, then this is kind of like Boba Fett. Okay, this is where we can stop with that. <laughs> yeah, that is where we need to stop. <laughs> But um, but yeah, and of course, you know, that's the other big thing is that uh, we have the also movie. clearly the Witch King of Angmar is the Boba Fett of these movies. We're done. <laughs> uh, but we, you know, the the death of Boromir takes place at the end of this movie, um, which again is for the purpose of wh- where are good points to break the film these films up. It works best at the end of Fellowship. Well, I mean, and they don't have... Yeah, because if you look at what he did with the Hobbit movies, where, you know, at the end of the second Hobbit movie, Smaug flies off, and then the beginning of the third movie, he dies in 10 minutes. Like, that was so dissatisfying to watch. It would not work emotionally, you know, 10, 15 minutes into Two Towers. Well, and this is also an element of, realistically speaking, The Lord of the Rings is one book that has three very distinct segments. Mm-hmm. However he was publishing it out at a much regular pace, like part, part, part. So the idea of not having definitive splits within the books is fine. That's the way he would well, have written. Well, I mean, yes and no, because the Fellowship of the Ring and the Two Towers came out within like six months of each other, but it was another year until Return of the King came out. So yeah, that is a little bit more of a... But, but again, it's still, it's still piecemealed over the course of time. Well, but th- this is something I've been thinking about as well as I've been reading. And I mentioned this in the Tolkien Birthday podcast, but I've been reading Elena Ferrante's Neapolitan novels, which are absolutely unbelievably incredible. And I highly encourage anybody who's been thinking about reading them to read them. But so they came out one a year, um, to, you know, one in 2012, one in 13, one in 14, the last one in 15. And she the, the author has stated that she considers them to be a single work. But at the same time, like I'm noticing like they break at specific points. So I do think it's interesting looking at these, you know, serialized novels, I guess is what they are. Um, and, and seeing, you know, they are single works, but at the same time, the way that they are divided into separate books, like there is, there, there's purpose to that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and this is as, as somebody who is interested in, storytelling and writing fiction i myself i know have sat here have sat and like going i have this like big idea for a story yet when it comes down to theming certain themes only exist within certain storylines that usually tends to be a big thing because i mean fellowship of the ring i imagine is theming differently than the two towers in some ways the themes are going to be different because the characters are in different places 
I mean, there's a reason why the Fellowship of the Ring ends with the chapter titled "The Breaking of the, the Fellowship. Fellowship." Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Fellowship of the Ring, <laughs> aka stuff doesn't last. <laughs> but you know, don't we, get too attached to things. We, uh, you know, we 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 miss we miss certain things, such as you know, um, when Frodo and and Sam kind of run into elves just outside the Shire, um, and we miss. You know, we, we don't meet Tom Bombadil in these movies again. No because fatty it, Lumpkin. Because it doesn't really fit. No fatty Lumpkin. Story. One well, out of five that's, stars. That's, I mean, that's clearly the largest thing they excised was was Tom Bombadil and the Barrow Downs. And, you know, I, I mentioned this in the Barrow, and I think the gifts of Galadriel. Yes, <laughs> our discussion of the gifts of Galadriel, but, you know, in the text, they get daggers from the Barrow White that they're stuck in. Or the barrow that they're stuck on us. Um, and, you know, the the text says that these daggers are remnants of the people who used to live in this land. And they were specifically created to fight Angmar. And Merry and Pippin carry these daggers with them for the entirety of the book. And, in fact, that magical property imbued in these daggers does become important. And we don't get that in the movie. So, and this is a reference to the extended edition, which we didn't even watch, but Katie and I and Chase are all very familiar with. In the movie, extended edition, the gifts from Galadriel is they get those daggers. So it's it's interesting to see, like, you know, what they excise and the way that they work around it. And I'm not entirely opposed to Tom Bombadil not being in the movie because I honestly don't think that there's a good way to make him fit in the movie because Tom Bombadil, that, that, that chapter is such a bizarrely... Um, it, it, it clashes with the rest of the book. And I don't mean to say that it feels like it doesn't belong, but it feels very, very different in tone. And so to put that in the, in the middle of the movie, you know, that would, that, that is something that would take audiences out. I yeah. think. I mean, it's good for the book to give us somebody who in many ways, and this is said in the uh, council of Elrond section that he's kind of like the opposite of Sauron in many ways. But he also is kind of problematic because he, I mean, he's important in the tone of the book and needs to be there. But for this movie, he would just seem as, yeah, like you said, in a random aside. And yeah. And, and that, again, that o- overarching story of how are we going to destroy the ring? Um, there, There's not a place on that in the movie for Tom Bombadil. So, and yeah. The- Part of that just goes down to like the book is being told from somebody's perspective and you don't get that with the movie. Right. Right. Um, Another big change that I really don't mind at all is so again, we, we, instead of Glorfindel, we have Arwen comes um, and helps and and takes Frodo to to Rivendell after he's been stabbed in Weathertop. Uh, An expanded role for a character who isn't in the book Who does, very yeah. often. Yeah, so basically what we've done is given Arwen more of a character um, so that really you can kind of understand uh, the relationship between Ar- Aragorn and Arwen. Um, I love it. It's and a good what they had, too, so. I'm all for it. <laughs> and what they had originally done was that um, in the Two Towers they were going to have Arwen come to Helm's Deep and fight alongside Aragorn. And there's like footage from that. They filmed it and then they decided not to use it. And like 
they made the right decision. So, you know, like there was this opportunity to kind of overexpose the character and they didn't. Yeah, this this was really the best way to to kind of add a little bit more meat to Arwen's character. Um, the, the problem with that, though, is it does take away one of my favorite moments from Fellowship of the Ring, which is Frodo standing up to the uh, the Nazgul and you know, basically being like, "Come at me, bro!" and then fainting. I, I, I still I still say, like I did on that episode, that that scene to me in my head it was like, "You guys might see it as heroic, but I see uh, in Frodo's brain it's heroic." On the outside, he's going because <laughs> he's so <laughs> sick and and tired and sore. And I just imagine all in high school like looking at each other, going like, "This freak, what?" <laughs> That was I, that's just how I always saw that part, my friend. Yeah, and that'd be really awkward to shoot that, but I could just imagine it being like <laughs> him on the bank, Elijah Wood, yelling all triumphantly. But it cuts and it shows what the ring rays are seeing, and it's just like him just spouting like a weird dog, speaking in tongues or something. Uh, but I, I do agree, John. That's kind of my only, uh, my only one drawback from that was was missing out on that big big moment for Frodo. It's bittersweet. It's bittersweet. Yeah. But at the same time, we do get big moments for Frodo later on. So it's okay. Um, trying to think, uh, if I wanted to talk about any other major changes, but (laughs) what, what did I say? I'm a terrible person. I was just a terrible joke. So say like big moments, like when he saves Ron from the Whomping. There, there, I mean, there are some aesthetic choices that I don't like. Um, Good, just go right over it, please. <laughs> I, I, I don't like when, when Bilbo is well. Three specific things, and this is a pet peeve of mine, um, is when filmmakers like edit perfectly normal performances with CG to make them like scary. Uh, you know, this that that made me incapable of enjoying Black Swan because I thought Natalie Portman was doing a fine enough role. And then all of a sudden, like, you know, her eyes turned into swan eyes. And I was like, what? And it took me out of it. I was like, you know, you're depriving the actress of one of her one of her assets. And, they, you know, Peter Jackson does this in this movie three times. One, when Gandalf is trying to convince Bilbo that he needs to leave the ring and the room like gets you know, the shadow grows and then the shadow disappears. And I understand why that happened, but I think it's a little too heavy handed. And then that happens again when Bilbo is talking with Frodo and Bilbo is basically tries to take the ring from Frodo. Um, you know, that scene, like Bilbo's face actually turns into a goblin and like his teeth get pointy for a second. And I mean, that's unnecessary. And then that's, that's also like a problematic thing with Peter Jackson is he is, I mean, he's taking something from the book that when we talked about it, we talked about in big metaphorical terms. Like, this is like the element of magic and oddities of the Middle Earth is in that you're seeing it, but you're kind of not really seeing it. Are you feeling yeah. it or are you, mm-hmm. you really seeing it? And this is a description that was pulled from the book and handled in the movie like it was an actual description. Yeah. And those are the yeah. both times. And that's kind of why I feel like they kind of sit so weirdly on us. And I mean, even if you watch them, I think I think the, the 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 Gandalf one in the Shire is is still fine if you've not read the books, but having read the books, it feels a little weird. Um, but the the Bilbo one always 
always felt yeah, weird to me. Yeah, <laughs> and then the third, the third one is Galadriel when she's resisting the temptation of the ring. And even when I was a kid, I thought this was a little overkill because it it looks like somebody airbrushed over her. Like it, I I just don't think that the CG that they did for her is particularly good. And I, you, Kate Blanchett has more than demonstrated that she's one of the most capable actresses of our time. And you know, you should just trust the actress. And the thing is. There are so many other filmic techniques that Peter Jackson has in his repertoire that he can use to signal something as alien. And he does it most famously in Fellowship of the Ring. I think when the the ring rates approach for the first time, he does a dolly zoom and you see the kind of the fabric, this the, like the fabric of the space of the forest trail that they're on. You see it like morphing because of that dolly zoom. And, you know, you can you can do that. You can you can change the lens you're using. You can change the the focal length. You can place people in different parts of the frame to to create unease because film is a language that we have, as an audience, have been trained to read. And so, I guess it comes off to me as like not really trusting the audience as well. I I think that that's that's it. Um, and I I agree with you that those three that they were they were a little much i think that it's it's very difficult to create that moment that you get from reading the text um and i think it just was done just slightly too heavy-handed i yeah exactly yeah i yeah i, I totally agree with, with what you're saying well and i think that you know that specifically that part with galadriel i like the element that her costume is phasing back and forth between you know, we see her in the long, flowy, white mm-hmm. gown-like thing, and then to the armor. Mm-hmm. I like that. It was just the, like, why is she suddenly blue? And why yeah, does exactly. her, like, skin have no texture, it's you like know? She, it's, it's like the, her, the film, like, we have, like, a, a, a negative film over, like, filter over. I don't know. It's, and, it's, yeah, it's a little it's a little bit over the top. Well, and also, there, there are just elements of this movie that are dated in that sense of, at this time when... You know, a lot of stuff they're kind of like crafting for the first time, like these CG filters and things like that are coming up. What we have figured out since then is that the tried and true method is either camera angles or color grading. Like there's a lot of scenes in this movie we kept noting if if we had if they had shot the ring sequence where he puts the ring on Mm -hmm. instead of the weird like whispery, like everything feels like it's being blown away by wind. It would probably been color graded Mm -hmm. and the the quality of the image would have changed in a very different way. It, it would, I'm, I'm thinking of, um, oddly, this is a weird example, but I, I, I think it's appropriate of how not too dissimilar, but how similar in the Avengers when it's the, when it's the shots in space versus the shots on earth, how the color scheming was so different. Oh no, better example, Mad Max Fury Road, the difference between, the day sequences and the night sequences Mm -hmm. is probably more of what we would have seen. Instead, what they did in this movie was these weird, like, it seems like there's a really weird wind blowing and it's kind of off-putting and like a not so, I don't know, not horrible. Like, I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying we, we would have, it would have been done differently. It would have been done differently today. Um, but that made me think of something else that I want to talk about that, uh, is another thing that makes these movies so dear to me is all of the kind of forced perspective work um, that was done. Because again, these movies feel so real and tangible because of those practical effects. You know? 
Yeah. Well, and the, the really cool thing is that they kind of invented a lot of tricks to be able to film them. Um, you know, previously people who had employed Ford's perspective had always done it using a fixed camera and they realized they figured out a way that you could, you know, do uh, like you could pan the camera, you could have it on a dolly. Basically if, you know, the Hobbit is in the background and, you know, if Frodo's in the background and Gandalf is in the foreground and then the camera is, you know, obviously in front of them both, what you do is you have, imagine uh, a lever that goes between the camera and Frodo and Frodo is the fulcrum of the lever and then Gandalf is in the middle. So as they're moving the camera, they're actually moving Gandalf as well. And from the perspective of the camera, it doesn't look like they're moving. It looks like they're staying relative to each other. Yeah. And I feel like a lot of that stuff, um, I just felt, I can't but feel like a lot of things were created for this movie and have really not been used in any other movies before. Primarily primarily because they're not necessarily a need. Because, I mean, this movie is kind of like the example of, like, a very specific sort of story, very specific sorts of characters. And they would have had to create a lot of things that would probably not necessarily be used in any other movies. However... I feel like we would not have had the 21st century in film like we would have had if it hadn't been for the Lord of the Rings. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, you know, so, so many, I mean, like, techniques that that were used in this film were pioneered here. And, you know, there, there's good and there's bad in that. Because I think the most, the most apt criticism is because Lord of the Rings, every big movie feels like it has to end in a major climactic battle sequence. And, you know, like, Fellowship of the Ring does that, even though the book doesn't. Um, You know, on the other hand, this movie gave us Weta Workshop, which, you know, was basically, I mean, I I believe it existed before this movie, but this is what put it on the map. And, you know, if you look at what Weta Workshop has worked on, you know, since this movie came out, they worked on Mad Max Fury Road. They worked on Avatar, which I know some people don't like, but... You have to remember what it was like seeing Avatar for the first time. And they worked on, you know, District 9. They worked on, um, you know, King Kong, which, you know, talk about Peter Jackson not knowing when to cut back on movies. King Kong is overlong. But at the same time, yeah, it was really, it was a really good experience to watch, you know? I mean, and not, not even just movies. They've worked on video games as well. They've helped on uh, the most recent Halo games and stuff yeah. like that. So, yeah. Uh, Oh, oh, I was about to say something else, but I kind of lost track of it when you started talking about Weta. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, this movie in of itself, I don't know. <laughs> maybe you'll remember it. But, and so another thing that you can't ignore uh, when talking about these movies is the score. I mean, Howard Shore... A genius. <laughs> There's a reason why... The the this these movies have themes that have stuck with me, yep. and that I have loved because like, and then also knowing that we're gonna be shooting these movies at the same time and being able to work ahead, he already had themes for Gondor that you they, hear just weaved in and out just so perfectly. Yeah, great. I almost wanted to like keep tricking, like see like. Well, they don't really mention Rohan, so no, there's we, no real theme. There's no Rohan. reason to have the Rohan theme coming. But yet, I mean, just but... having that like 
we're gonna we're gonna hide foreshadowing in this music in ways yeah. that I mean there are themes laid in this movie that are gonna be expanded in the sequels, but you don't don't know that yet, you know, <laughs> and until you like get the whole grand picture of it all. Yeah, and you know, it's it's impossible to talk about uh, light motifs and film music without talking about John Williams, who really did kind of bring it to contemporary attention with his work largely on Star Wars. Um, I remember several years ago, I was at band camp and Canadian Brass came and did a big concert and they played a Lord of the Rings um, music kind of medley. And the person, the announcer said that it was music written by John Williams and it made me so (laughs) mad at the time. (laughs) The thing hilarious. is, it doesn't. It sounds nothing like John Williams. No, it really doesn't. It, I mean, it's so distinctive. A John Williams score is so obviously a John Williams score, but this is nothing like it. I mean, yes, it's like it in that it is also incredibly successful at using a light motif, but it's it it is its own very unique thing, and yeah, it's a, it's a very successful score. I think Two Towers has the best score, though. Yeah, it's uh, it, it, it to me it has the best. Um... Oh, I'm not gonna talk about two towers yet. I'll no. I'll save that for. We'll we'll save that for be, later. You guys are gonna be seeing me tearing up. Yeah. Pretty soon, <laughs> let's just say. It's gonna be great. Uh, but. Oh man, I mean, it's been fourteen years since I saw this movie, and I went and saw it in the theaters and I had since no, you first saw the movie. My first okay. saw the movie. <laughs> And it, what did you think I was saying? Well, I thought you said just since you saw the movie. And oh, I was like, mm, that's no. not quite right. I'm sure you've but, seen it since then. <laughs> I mean, I when I went to this theater, I knew nothing about the Lord of the Rings. Li- I mean, literally nothing. Mm-hmm. I had never heard of it. I do knew. I didn't know who J.R.R. Tolkien was. I went in the movie with the knowledge of this is the first in a trilogy. And that's it. Everything <laughs> else, like I can't even. Basically, you're getting the perspective right now of a person who who. When I was a child, I didn't know this stuff mm-hmm. at all, and my first interaction was that movie, and not and just and not really getting it fully, but loving it. So I mean, for many, this movie was successful. That, I was going to say. say that shows the because, success of the movie. Yeah. Uh, I never read the books, never even heard of it, and I still dug it. I still was into it, and I still loved it, and I and I was very excited to see the, the second one. Yeah, and I think yeah that, that that certainly shows the strength and success of this movie. It it did what it what it's supposed to do. It introduces you, it in, introduces uh, those who are new to it to the story and the world, and successfully draws you in. And those who are very familiar with it, I think it does a very good job of upholding the story as it needs to be for the movies. So, Katie, as a child of the Tolkien, <laughs> um, do you, what was it like when you first saw it? You know, the one of many times you saw it in theaters. <laughs> so the first time we saw it, and we saw it, you know, the day it came out, um, I think, so my mom even made me a cloak. Again, I told you my mom hates sewing, but she's really good at it. She made she made me a, a like a Lorian cloak, and I'm pretty sure I wore it to the theater because I was that kid. Yeah, 
I was oh, that god. kid. Oh my god. Um, and <laughs> you dressed up. I did. For oh, that's adorable. I do. No, like okay. Night. So on this note, when I saw Star Wars at midnight, people brought lightsabers and like some of them like waved them around in the theater and turned them on and like people started applauding and I was like, why are we doing this? Don't yeah, don't don't do that. But no, but yeah, I, like I dressed up for Harry Potter. I was that kid. Anyway, um, the, it was like unchecked childlike glee that was happening as like I remember I remember that title card came up and I was sitting next to my mom and we kind of looked at each other and then looked back at the screen and just like grinning ear to ear and we like I, I was there were so many moments in the film I was like leaning forward out of my chair because again you know what's happening um you, you know what's going to come but like just seeing the story brought to life before your eyes and even if it's different from how you imagined it, it, it there are certain things that are there were there were some things that were exactly in my brain um as as i had thought of them that that i i i get that in the sense you know, of like i mean i've i've always been a person of whenever the 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 the, the things that i liked as a kid very rarely actually get made into movies or come out as like adaptations of that. I got to have that experience for the first time recently because one of my favorite Arthur C. Clarke books when I was a teenager was um, Childhood's End. Yeah. And so I've read it five or six times. I've read it a lot. In fact, I read it again a couple of years ago and then I've been watching Sci-Fi Channel put out a miniseries now and I got to have that experience was kind of negative because i was like going hey, you really messed this up but i felt like i actually have that experience of like this is something i know very well as a kid and am very knowledgeable of it and watching someone else's adaptation and being able to criticize it or at least acknowledge it in some way however mm-hmm. i I, re- I just remember distinctly the first time now oh, this would have been you know watching the trailer for the for the movie but seeing the characters for the first time saying like yep that's aragorn yeah that's pippin yeah that's that's gamely that's exactly how i would imagine these people to look like honestly like the the character design w- was fantastic loved it i mean they're not exactly what's in my brain but ian mckellen is gandalf yeah <laughs> <laughs> um sean bean is boromir mm-hmm. uh vigo mortensen is uh Aragorn in my brain and John Reese Davies is very much like Gimlin and and, and Caitlin Chet is Gladriel. Like they all are my personal internal interpretations of those characters. Yeah. Like and I'm not gonna say that having seen the movie first, because reading the books, Frodo's Frodo is different to me yeah. in my brain. Yeah. Um Saruman is different to me in my brain. But those characters, they on point. Perfect. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. On point. Well, shall we talk about our favorites? Sure, yeah. Let's talk. Favorite part of the whole movie. Mine, I think, is the moment where... This is very much like the hero shot of the film. And it was in the trailers, uh, but it's still an incredibly effective moment, which is the mo- it, right after the Fellowship first comes together. And they are walking you know and this shot of all nine of them kind of walking over this path 
together and they each get their kind of moment in the camera and it's when the fellowship theme first swells for the first time like it's just such an effective moment just in terms of you know pure filmmaking it is such an effective moment it really gets to me like it gives you goosebumps yeah and that, oh gosh that's one of my favorite parts too um i'll have to pick a different one i'm gonna cheat okay my favorite part of this movie was my favorite part of the book too. <laughs> it's when they're in the grand hall of uh, Moria. Like, I, I'm sorry, that part that that just hits me. Oh, like that is the stuff I love is when when they when he when Gandalf is they're coming into him. He's like, we should we could probably go with some more light, mm-hmm. and they see it, and the music swells. I'm like, that's perfect. That is. <laughs> I, think, I dig that. <laughs> I think that's kind of a key to a lot of a lot of things in this movie is and the music swells because well, it's also- because uh, like the, the, you have these grand moments and mm-hmm. yeah, the, I mean the cinematography, the design, everything paired with with the score at that moment, yeah, it's perfect. It's I mean, ultimate I'm, perfection. I'm pretty close to just like before I go to bed then I'm going to listen to that track yeah. again. Um I'll pick another one because both of those were also God damn, tied. I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, yeah, both both of those honestly could have been my favorite. So I'll pick another one. Um, it's the moment when they meet uh, Celeborn and Galadriel in Lothlorien. Oh yeah, that's a good part. Um, which you know, I, I, again, it's it's it was slightly different from how it was in, in the in the book, and I don't mind it at all. I think it was great. So they, they're walking down these steps toward the fellowship and you see them, I think it's like a shot from behind them. And again, that kind of really just hauntingly ethereal theme that um, is used for Lorien com- comes in and Caliborn and Galadriel descend these stairs and they're just illuminated, which is how they should be. Like they're almost glowing and you know Galadriel has this golden hair and they're skin is so fair and porcelain and beautiful and they just look regal as they should um and that that's another one of those kind of moments where everything all together just creates the perfect moment in the film yeah i'll go with that <laughs> i mean they definitely looked like how yeah, the buddhist grandma was like beautiful and grave yeah, or something like that yeah, yeah beautiful and grave and you know because lothlorien is fair and perilous right and you totally got that from from the movie which is why i appreciate it so so much because i really do think it hits all these kind of notes and again no having read the book you may appreciate it a little more but you don't necessarily have to have I, I i still think the movie is successful for those who are not as familiar with it i am a living embodiment of that <laughs> living proof right here. <laughs> yes all right well any favorite moments uh, or favorite things from the week that you'd like to recommend what did i this this week uh holiday weeks are so weird they make me so confused like you've done yeah. everything and nothing. Yeah, I've done everything and nothing. What what did I do this week? Um, I don't know. I, I mean, don't go I know it. I know mine. <laughs> I'm I'm I bought a ton of movies on iTunes because there was a big sale, and I bought a ton of movies, and I and I've been reconnecting with a bunch of movies that I liked from like ten years ago, but I haven't watched since then. So I've been watching all the Bourne movies again. Uh, and so oh, last fun. night I watched Bourne Identity and Bourne Supremacy, and I was just reminded how much I really do. I love those movies in a way that I feel like um, 
I've got a lot of like guilty pleasures. I feel like where it's like I like them, but I feel like everyone else is a little not too hot on them. But I, I'm like, I like these movies a lot, and I kind of get the criticism, but I kind of still dig them. And the Bourne movies are very much that. I like how stupidly complex they are. I love the Bourne movies. Uh, they're, they're dude, Paul Greengrass. That Paul, yes. <laughs> I mean, what's a Bourne supremacy? And then at, like after watching the Bourne Identity is a simpler story, but the Bourne supremacy is just a more like engrossing movie. It's you, more you need to watch. You need to watch Captain Phillips. It is really good. I'm doing like basically in doing this, I'm doing like a big Paul Greengrass watch where I'm going to yeah. watch the Bourne movies. And I'm going to watch United Three again and cry uncontrollably. And then I'm going to watch Captain Phillips. And then the fifth Bourne movie will come out in the, in the summer, apparently. Yay. So, yeah, that's funny because I've also been watching the Bourne movies because they're kind of I. My family will often watch the Bourne movies around Christmas because we I don't know why, but we feel like they're Christmas movies for us. <laughs> I mean, they're always I mean, snowing. To be fair, them. the first one does kind of take place sort of around yeah, it does. Christmas, so I don't know. So does the uh, third one, right? And it, yeah, the third one does too. Um, so yeah, but we, we tend to watch them around Christmas too. And yeah, I, I, I always enjoy them. <laughs> Dude, I just noticed that Magic Mike XXL is only $10 on iTunes right now. And I am totally buying it. That might be my 10th favorite movie of the year. Like... So my favorite, my favorite thing from this week and my recommendation. And I already talked about this on the birthday special, but you need to be reading Elena Ferrante's neapolitan novels they are so good like unimaginably good i don't know i i don't want to overhype it but i am 700 pages into these novels and i am ruining the day for not having enough hours for me to keep reading i am less than halfway it is it is subtle and it is explosive i might have to pick those up because i mean i'm in this position where my plan was for this year i had two plans I was going to get big back into baseball again because mm-hmm. I had a year last. I've had a few years of elapse. Um, and then I'm going to kind of like, I'm going to read all the books from my favorite authors that I've not read yet. Like there's a few books by Margaret Atwood I haven't read yet. And a few books by William S. Burroughs and, and Albert Camus I've not read yet. And I really want to finish up and say I've read all their books, you know. So when you say you're going to get into baseball again, you mean you're going to start to follow the Yankees, right? Nope. No Yankees. I got no Yankees. I, you know, I follow. I follow. You know, I for, for you, John. I follow the Yankees. I follow the Yankees news, but I don't. They're not. They're not my favorite. Ooh, Yankees. But but I follow them. I'm not. I'm not that far. <laughs> but I had this brief thought of about like coming up there when the Blue Jays were playing the Yankees, so the Blue Jays could be kicking Yankees butts. But well, you know, <laughs> I, I, I live. Face. I live in the same <laughs> borough as Yankee Stadium. <laughs> My team, I actually live nowhere near like Yankee Stadium, but well, I mean, if you get a car, I live pretty close, but not by public transit. I mean, if anyone's curious, my team's the Toronto Blue Jays. That's my team. Detroit Tigers. And she's Tigers. There we yeah. Go. Um, my favorite thing from the week is uh, so for Christmas, I got a an adult coloring book, um, and so adult coloring books, John. I know that you don't understand this phenomenon, but. It's this. It's it's a thing that's happening apparently. That and there's all kinds of them that you can get, and it's just kind of like a, a nice way to space out and relax. They seem extremely therapeutic. Yeah. So I got um, some colored pencils, and I got the uh, Sherlock Mind Palace coloring book. I guess my 
I guess my problem with it is that like a lot of the people I've interacted with who who are into adult coloring books are like very self-indulgent about it and it's it's I don't know there's just, like it's it's very strange to me. <laughs> I again I like I I was just kind of watching uh Parks and Rec the other day and at at, at the same time coloring in a page and it was really fun. I liked it. I liked color and I it, it's 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 really great there's like you know just bunches of scenes from the show and you can make with them what you want to and I like it I kind of also want to get one that's just like random uh shapes and stuff that I can color in too I don't know I like I've always liked coloring I feel like I want I want like a themed one that is like you know it's like they have a bunch of like themed off of movies that kids yeah. shouldn't be seeing but it's like totally for adults it's like well, here, here they're adult coloring books <laughs> here is the ex machina themed coloring I would love an ex machina coloring book especially <laughs> like uh, one with uh that's like a picture of that scene at the end with Oscar Isaac, or like, just like bleeding out, <laughs> or like it's, like it's like the Saw franchise coloring. Oh, book. spoiler alert! Rex Machina. Oh, that's been out for several months. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I I have been enjoying coloring lately. Hey, I, I right. play video games. I can't say anything. <laughs> well, I let's cut the chatter and call it an end to the day. Uh, Thanks. yeah. Oh, sorry. Take it away, Katie. I was just going to say thank you once again to our Patreon supporters. Um, Avon McMaster, Mike Williams, Benjamin John Macy, Micah, and Jacob Verma. Um, Thank you so much for contributing to our podcast, helping us grow, helping us buy new equipment, and uh, maintain our website, and all of that jazz. We truly appreciate every little bit. All right. Well, I'm John. I'm Katie. Oh, we're starting another book next week. We're starting another book next week. Oh, I'm Chase. So join us next week when we read the first chapter of The Two Towers. Thank you for listening to Talking Tolkien. You can find us online at TalkingTolkien.com and you can send us an email to theprofessor at TalkingTolkien.com. We are also Talking Tolkien on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, and Stitcher. If you're an iTunes subscriber and you like what you hear, please be sure to give us a rating and review. We also have a Patreon account where you can donate as little as $1 per month to help us grow our podcast and help with expenses such as microphones and server space. Every little bit is appreciated.